So we're going to get our grub on and our and our drink on and our music on. <laughs> Hi, this is Robert Schuler with Melissa's Produce, and you're listening in on Cord Vines and Dye. Hello, this is Billy Yates. I am a record producer and musician and former guitarist for the Outlaws and sometimes with the Marshall Tucker Band. And I would like to say that I am here on chords, vines, and dines. To my right, on the guitar, from NSL Audio Technique, all that good stuff, Mr. Billy Yates, ladies and gentlemen, Billy Yates. Sunday afternoon to you, and welcome to Chords, Vines, and Dines with me, Tom Plant, and our host, our founder, the marvelous, the impeccable, (laughs) the incredible, indefatigable, (laughs) Cat Ellis. That was pretty funny. Hi, Tom. Uh, Hi, Cat. Happy Happy, Sunday. Happy Sunday to you. How are you doing? I'm great. How about yourself? Pretty good. I'll tell you how I am is very excited about our show today. What a lineup. We've got, you were just listening to Billy Yates, who is a guitar player who will blow your mind. It's such a nice guy. And uh, that little snip we had was when he was playing with uh, with my good friend. Sugar Ray. Sugar Ray Rayford. Right. And that was from a previous NAMM show at the Hilton with the uh, Sugar Ray and the CK All-Stars. They only got together that one night, uh, and boy, were they absolutely uh, incredible. So... And, uh, yeah, I I'm cannot wait to meet him in person. Uh, it, it's just such a joy visiting with him. And uh, it won't be the last that uh, we hear of Billy Gates. Uh, oh, no, I plan on. He's got some artists that he's working with yeah, that he's producing, to... and we're going to start putting some of those artists on the show, too, when he's ready. And he's got some of his own music. So we've not seen the last of Mr. Yates. No. And in our glasses, we have the 2021 Dry Creek Vineyard Chardonnay, and boy, is this tasting nice. It is. What a pretty color, too. And not only are we drinking it, we're going to have a visit with associate winemaker Brian Pruitt from Dry Creek Vineyard in Sonoma County. Uh, Brian 
<laughs> he's very sharp and uh, really knows his wine. And Dry Creek has just consistently produced incredible wines. That's sort of my go-to wine when I'm at the store. And I thought, what do I do? What do I get? Dry oh, Creek. Dry Creek. No, no you can brainer. Have, you can't go wrong with Dry Creek. Finally, we have David Dennis, and he's written a book called Gameness. And uh, I just loved our visit with him. And you were able to share with him a little bit of what's going on in your yeah. life. And he just said, yeah, I, I, I get it. And I, I, I brought out some of my inner self. Yeah, you did. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm just excited to present all of this to you today. And uh, we're going to kick things off with David Dennis, the author of Gameness. I do have a trivia question for you. Uh-oh. Do you know what Broadway... Uh, uh, musical is ending after a 35 year run this week wow um I, I don't even know that i could take a stab in the dark phantom of the opera oh wow 35 years yeah uh, phantom of the opera's nearly 35 year run will come to an end today as the chandelier falls for the final time <laughs> at the majestic theater the musical sensation it's the longest running show in broadway history can incredible. you believe that incredible composer Andrew Lloyd Webber? Exactly. Debuted his play on Broadway back in 1988. The show has won seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical of the Year it opened in the United States. Uh, nearly two million people have seen the show, wow. and it has grossed $1.3 billion. billion B. <laughs> My goodness. Uh, the Phantom of the Opera's final show will take place today at 5 p.m. Well, I think we're going to miss it, but... Kudos. I know. That what was one of my job. mom's favorites. I think yeah. she saw it several times when it was up here in L.A. How nice. And um, I I really wish I could have seen it. But oh, It's an amazing accomplishment. It is. 35 years. Wow. Can you believe that? So, all right. So we, what should we do next? Well, let's go on to our visit with uh, David Dennis. And, and in the middle of the show, uh, I made this incredible purple potato salad with oh, with goodies from so Melissa's good. produce so we'll talk I'm going to actually give you the recipe we'll post it on our Facebook page and uh, we'll talk more about uh, the Dry Creek wine uh, we've got a great show lined up for you yep we do we've got a great one we are with David Dennis who has just published a book called Gameness Land on Your Feet Not on Your Feelings uh, David, this is a fascinating book and uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, about what your premise is going in here Thanks, Tom. Yes, be happy to. Um, I, uh, without getting into a lot of detail, I, I had some challenges in my, my childhood as a kid. Lost my dad when I was uh, just before I turned four. Mm. During the next year, lost my mom. Lost my mom. Uh, she cratered under a battle she was having with alcoholism, trying to cope with his loss and raising two kids uh, with no high school education or college or job skills training. He was the provider, he was a construction worker. Um, so she, she really, uh, you know, her, her whole life just collapsed. Uh, it resulted in my sister not being removed from her custody, by child protective services placed in different foster homes. And uh, thankfully we got reunited and raised by another, by the same family, a different family. Uh, but our mother tragically later uh, passed out one night, uh, drunk, smoking a cigarette, and then burned to death in a fire in our house. And so uh, I, I, I went through a lot of uh, pain as a kid, uh, really struggled with that as a teenager, uh, trying to sort through all of that. Uh, and, and then um, 
couple of years after high school really had a real turnaround in my life. Uh, you know, uh, with a newfound faith and and a kind of new, new spiritual direction in my life, and it was a real turnaround for me. And I stopped uh, kind of the self-destructive path that I was on. And as a result of that, I I just really felt a, a great desire and, and passion to commit myself to um, helping other people that were going through adversity, uh, and especially children and families. And that led to volunteering initially at the Big Brother and the Big Brother and Sister program when I was in college. And then uh, it became a career which led me to be where I am now, CEO of a national nonprofit, uh, working with uh, people in 20 states across the country challenged with much of the same adversities I experienced as a kid. So that's a, a bit of, you know, kind of how I, you know, came to be interested in the topic uh, of gayness. And and why I wanted to write the book is uh, we had five children of our own and we, um, you know, I, one of the things that I always missed was uh, kind of a void in my life was that hole I never could feel. And, and it was having a conversation with my dad. I never got to have that. I, I thought many times, still think about how cool it would have been to just, you know, heard some advice, life lessons, uh, you know, from him. And, and so I told my kids that I was writing this book for them. It was really the conversation I never had with my dad. It wasn't just a, a book of reflections I wanted to leave with them. I, I decided that I wanted to leave behind something with them that I, I felt like would be the most important advice and guidance I could give them from all the life I had lived and observations from doing a lot of private practice counseling with families and leading human services programs with, with uh, very challenged families and, you know, just lessons I've learned from others, et cetera. But I wanted, to, I wanted to leave behind kind of a roadmap, if you will, and kind of for them to, you know, these are the most important things from, from my perspective that would help you be able to live your life to its fullest potential and also be, uh, protect you from, uh, you know, allowing yourself to fall victim to circumstances outside your control and adversity when it comes knocking at your door. And so the, the banner on the book you probably saw there is, to, you know, finding advantages in your adversity and uh, the landing on your feet, not your feelings, is just as it sounds. It's, it's uh, you know, every day we get up, life is going to have adversity that's going to demand something of us. So it's kind of a, the book is about that. It's, so, it's sorting through all that, and I'll pause there, I guess, if I if maybe ask another question. One of the premises of your book, the way I understand it, is that if you go in with an attitude that it's not possible for you to lose, that's kind of the mindset you want to have going in, right? Yeah, it's it's uh, it is that it's it's, uh, it's but it's more than it's more than that. It's it's uh, you know for for all of us, you know, no, no, nobody has anything to do with getting to Earth, right? We we end up here, and life begins to happen to us, and we begin to react to it. And so when you begin to react to it, you begin to to form your own kind of self-perception, your own worldview, your own beliefs and values, and then you begin to live that out. But those are really uh, pretty reactionary formations, and you're, you're building a, a way of living based on things that have happened to you. And so I, I, I just really found it was really important in my life that, as Kierkegaard said, 
for life to be understood, it's got to be understood backwards, but it must be lived forward. Wow. And so it's it's a book about about that. It's it's uh, understanding life is uncertain, unfair, and oftentimes unpleasant, uh, and that you have no control over all those circumstances, but you do have control over how you respond to them. And it's real important to to really think about the rest of the canvas that hasn't been painted on your future, your, your potential, and your purpose in your life, not just. Uh, what's happened to you in the past. I know Kat is eager to jump in, but I wanted to, uh, one of the things I really like about the way the book is laid out is at the end of each chapter, there's a bookmark there, Kat, and uh, it's called, hang on, um, Think About It. And there are several uh, topics that you bring up that were dealt with in the preceding chapter. For example, when it comes to looking into your past, you're looking into your future, where is your focus most often? Uh, I think that's wonderful to to let people really let everything sink in that they, they've read. Thanks, Tom. I, I after I wrote it, I I, I was uh, talking with the, the publisher and the editor, and we, we kind of came to the same conclusion. There really need to be an opportunity for self reflection and opportunity for application and and and, and group discussion. I, I donated some of these books to a prison uh, just to see what their feedback would be about the book. There was a men's book study group, and they, they did that with the book and answered the questions, and I, I donated some books to a, a girls' treatment center, and they're doing the same thing, and I've been getting feedback from them uh, from their group discussions. It's been, it's been really uh, encouraging and exciting to, to see some of the breakthroughs that, that people are making as they read the book and talk about it and apply it to their life. I love that the book really makes you think. It gives you a lot of food for thought. And, and Kat, I know you have some, some things you'd like to, to ask De- uh, David. Well, I'm not sure I have the question so much as I, I understand exactly where you're coming from, and I won't go into my total history, but um, my kids lost their dad, my husband, when they were quite young. And it was one of those things where you have the option of, going in the corner in a fetal position sucking your thumb or go ahead and keep moving forward and um, and you know so I kept moving forward with them and you know uh, opened up new doors and uh, new new uh, opportunities and kept them going and I would tell people I've got two kids looking at me and how to live their life and I got to wow. keep going forward That's- for them so I understand what your book is about, and it's and it's very good that some that that you were able to put this out because I'm sure there's a lot of people um, that have been in similar situations that just couldn't do it, like you said with your mom, um, you know, not being able to cope losing your dad. I could understand where she's coming from, but I I for myself, you know, I just kept going forward. In fact, worked with the. Um, pastor of the church for a while on a uh, bereavement support group for younger people yeah and actually did help a few other women get through because at the time there wasn't a support group for younger ones or always for older and that was yep you know and I was in my 40s and there was a lot of women at that time in the area that had lost their husbands in their 30s and 40s and didn't know how you know had a hard time moving forward so I got to applaud you on your book. I'm sure it's helping millions of people on this. Well, th- thanks for sharing that, Kat. That's that's uh, I so appreciate that. And you know, really, more than anything, um, I mean, I, who knows who's listening right now? 
and that's that's my greatest desire and and you having me on and what I always hope for is when I do a, you know an interview or a podcast about the book and have a conversation like this it's uh is that there's people listening that can could be right where you were when you lost your husband or right where my mom was when she lost her husband and my, my mom I think what was extra tough for her her first husband um had, had uh been killed tragically right in front of her when she was even younger she had already had two kids uh she came from abject poverty she had two kids by the time she was 16 years old her first husband had been killed this was her second so it's a lot of trauma to go through um but, you know mm-hmm. i was i was reading some statistics the other day and it just they, they just stuck i wrote them down I, i've got them on a piece of paper on my desk i was just going to read them um in terms of the relevance of the topic of this book this year there's going to be approximately 1.2 million suicide attempts in America. Wow. Wow. Um that that alone is is you know enough for me to want to get the message of this book out but the other ones that follow are just as staggering to me in different ways. 10 million adult arrests. 700,000 teenage arrests. 250,000 children will enter into the foster care system in the United States this year and approximately 700,000 marriages will end in divorce and we know the collateral damage that comes with that regardless of the reason and and the number one cause of death will be heart disease linked to inactivity and obesity so I mean there's there's a need for the message of the book and it's a challenging message you know, it's 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 but it's a message that I believe is is, is so needed. You know, what you shared, Kat, is um, those circumstances that happen to all of us and to listeners that are listening right now. You know, uh, having an ever quick mind. The, the book is laid out in four sections, and and um, gameness is an old word. Really, was used more back in the 1800s than now, and it's just one I felt like needed to be dusted off and brought forward. The four defining attributes of gameness are an ever-quit mindset, resoluteness to a purpose, having a fighting spirit, and having the will required to act beyond your feelings. And yeah. what you talked about earlier was, was so important because those events happened, those circumstances happened, and when you have an ever-quit mindset, it means that you don't make a decision about what you're going to do when those circumstances hit. You, you have to manage your perspective when those circumstances come, and that's what you did. You know, you, you just you had to you had looked at your your kids, and you and you had to, um, you, you know, when those circumstances happen, you you, you had to see uh, things better, even though you couldn't see better things at the moment. Those were that was a really hard thing to lose your husband, for them to lose your dad, and that's a reality. But you had to find a way uh, to do to work through that, and and you had to keep the right perspective in doing that, and uh, focus on their future, and and uh, not be powerless. And and so there's so many folks that that uh, need that word of encouragement, need a support group, like like you said, to get through those times. And my mom didn't have that. There was no one there available for her. It was a very rural, small town, and so um, I'm actually involved in and helping to uh, develop those kind of support networks back in my hometown, small town, even though I don't live there. It's, it's a very important um, charity for me. What a great perspective, David. And, and looking at Chapter 4, which is titled Living on Purpose, 
I love the quote from Dennis Waitley you have at the beginning. Life is inherently risky. There is only one big risk you should avoid at all costs, and that is the risk of doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, and it's, it's uh, <clears throat> there's another uh, little paragraph in the book you, you might have seen. If not, you, you will as you finish reading the book. And I think it really sums up in many ways uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to, to, to do with the book. And it was, it was a little message I took from Stephen Pressfield in a book he wrote, The War of Art. It's very powerful. It's, it's really a takeoff on what that quote you just quoted by Whaley. He said, in the end, the question can only be answered by action. Do it or don't do it. It may help to think of it this way. If you were meant to cure cancer or write a symphony or crack cold fusion and you don't do it, you not only hurt yourself, even destroy yourself. You hurt your your children, you hurt me, you hurt the planet, you shame the angels who watch over you, and you spite the Almighty who created you and only you with your unique gifts for the sole purpose of nudging the human race one millimeter further along its path back to God. Your work is not a selfish act or bid for attention on your part. It's a gift to the world and every being in it. Don't cheat us of your contribution. Give us what you've got. So what have you got to give? And I think that uh, action and taking action is hard sometimes. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, scary. And, you know, but it's the most liberating thing you can do. And uh, I, I love the quote by William James who said, I don't sing because I'm happy. I'm happy because I sing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love it. Do you have any other books in the making or a sequel to this? Or do you keep writing? Or what's your next step? What's next? You know, I, yeah, I, I appreciate you asking that. I, the, the, my publisher has actually uh, asked me if I would consider writing a children's book uh, that would mirror this book. And their, their thought was that, this is such an important message to get to children when they're younger. So they began to formulate this kind of uh, resilient thinking. Uh, you know, when there's, yes, kids face challenges and problems and adversity every day too, but they're not usually on this scale. Sometimes they are. But even at an early age and just everyday life events to begin to help them cultivate this mindset in their life and to, to understand how important game this is in their life and how important it is to have an ever-quit mindset and to think about their, their future, you know, not just events that have happened, uh, but their possibilities and their potential. And to, um, you know, the, the, the chapter on problems, you know, uh, I, the, how important it is to recognize that, you know, problems either create power in us or they take power over us. And, the, the, you know, we get up every day, we face adversity, we have problems come our way that demand things of us, but we have to demand things of, of problems. We have to decide that we're not going to just try to, we're not going to surrender to them, we're not going to just try to survive them, we're, we're going to subdue them. We're going to get better, stronger, wiser, learn something from it, and be better on the other side of it. And just kids cultivating that mindset uh, is so important. We have once, once again, 1.2 million suicide attempts will happen this year. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't have an ever-quit mindset, and uh, I'm not minimizing the pain that people are in, but there's, there's, there's families that are giving up on their kids that are going into the foster care system. As I said, marriages that are being surrendered, and 
and uh, on and on and on. So there's there's a need for the hope of this book, and so I really appreciate the opportunity to to you know help help promote it and get the message out there for folks. And I, that's my next thing. I, I'm either going to focus on writing a, a children's version of this, uh, or, or I'm going to write uh, and, and and get into more detail of each of the sections. I want to thank David Dennis so very much for being our guest today, uh, the author of the new book, Gameness, which I encourage all of our listeners to get. I think it would, is, it's a very powerful book, and it can, uh, make, it can make a difference, a big difference in your life. Thank you so much, Tom. All right, we're, we're back. Boy. Yep. Um, David Dennis and the book Gameness, uh, like I just said, highly recommend it. Uh, it really literally can change your life. It, it does. I mean, I, I, listening to everything he said is just... And he just tuned right into you and said, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, we got it. We had a thing going there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we've had uh, some nice email correspondence. He's, he's a wonderful human being, and I'm uh, privileged to... Well, somebody um, in that position has to be a very nice, caring person. Yep. You don't just do it for the notoriety or the money or whatever. You, you do it because you care. Yeah, it comes from... And it's obvious you, that he cares, and it, and it is. It's from his heart. It so. clearly comes from his heart. And again, uh, David Dennis, thank you so much, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back. So what have we been munching on, Kat? Oh, my gosh. One of the best potato salads. <laughs> I really, really liked it. You got the recipe. I do. And uh, just a reminder that Melissa's Produce is our official produce sponsor. Official. And boy, you you saw the box we got last week, right, Kat? Loaded with... It makes you want to cook. (laughs) It really does. Loaded with purple potatoes, organic celery, organic cucumbers, organic red peppers, organic scallions. And do you see the bulbs on those scallions? They're just like fat. Uh, And... uh, he sent us some of the, their clean snacks, which I'm hooked on. They're so good. They're made with uh, sunflower and chia and flax. And I had them before, and they didn't last long. So I did make the recipe for pur- purple potato salad. Try that five times fast. It was like a purple people eater, purple potato <laughs> salad. It's absolutely delicious. The only thing I would do differently is I'd put more potatoes in it. It calls for six baby purple potatoes. These potatoes, for the most part, are little tiny very small potatoes so uh, i used nine i would have doubled it easily Uh, so when when i make it again it's that good here's the recipe which we'll put on the facebook page six baby purple potatoes cut into bite-sized pieces and again i would double that i'd make it at least 12 two stalks of organic celery diced a half organic cucumber diced five scallions diced an organic bell pepper use red bell peppers which i did diced Non-dairy soy mayonnaise. I used the avocado oil uh, mayonnaise. That's good mayonnaise. Uh, uh, Sea salt and cracked black black peppercorn to taste. Half an organic lemon squeezed and two sprigs of organic parsley finely minced. So you just, you cook the potatoes, you bring them to a boil, cook them about 15, 20 minutes. I cooked them 15. I wouldn't cook them a minute longer. No, they were perfect. Uh, Drain them, obviously transfer to a mixing bowl. Uh, cool to room temperature. Then you stir in the celery, cucumber, scallion, and roasted pepper. Fold in your mayo to taste it. Season uh, to taste with salt and pepper. Stir in the lemon juice and parsley and mix well to coat and combine ingredients. And I'll tell you, it's tasty. Yeah, maybe we should do a video. Uh, well, next time we will. And we'll do another recipe because Melissa's is going to, um, maybe once a month or so, we'll, we'll cook something yeah. and ask our friends at Melissa's for a box. Okay. Melissa's.com. 
I think we should do a video and post it. Yes. YouTube it or TikTok it or Facebook it. One of those. It's <laughs> one of those good places. So I'm thinking that we should get on to our friend Billy Yates, and then uh, after we uh, our visit with him, we'll play the game of Ooh. food. I hate that game. I love it. <laughs> I hate it. Okay. Yeah, Billy and I go way back, as you can tell, Clearly. in the interview. So, and I was so looking forward to interviewing him. It's been way too long. And one of those friends that you just know when you meet, you're going to keep forever. And he sure loves and respects you. Ah, thank you. We are with my good friend, longtime good friend, Mr. Billy Yates. Yay! So, Billy, we, we go way back. And I met you. I think you were playing with uh, was it Seventh Son? Was that no? The... Uh, it was. Uh, it wasn't uh, Gunboat Kings then, was it? It was. It was the Midnight. Uh... Oh God, I forget. We we played all those gigs down at the Coach House with Bill on drums. I can't remember the. Yeah, Snakers, Mr. Snakeman, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we, we, we covered a lot of ground back then. And I think we first met when I uh, sat in with Marshall Tucker at the Coach House. Oh, is that it? Yeah, and then uh, Nick Calandrino was there. They opened up for us, and they got in touch with me, and they said, we want you to play with us. And that's that how we met. I was there with a group of friends, and we were partying hardy. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. That was back in the days of, wait for it, MySpace. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I was, I was going to say that. I, in fact, I was thinking about that earlier, that you and I were going back and forth a lot on MySpace, and you're the one that introduced yeah. me to Facebook. You said, oh, you got to try out this new one. Yeah. Yeah, I was early on in Facebook. I said, I am so out of here, man. MySpace was just really, it was limited bandwidth, and it just wasn't enough going on. But, hey, it got us to meet uh, and uh, get acquainted, and it's been uh, a great time ever since. Oh, it's been fun. So, Billy, t tell our listeners, how did you get going in, in music? When did you start? When did you decide you were going to be a professional musician? I was a young boy living in Atlanta, Georgia, in Buckhead, and my sister, Cassie Yates, who is a retired actress, uh, done a lot of great things in film and TV, uh, she was cutting hair in Buckhead at this place called Blood, Sweat, and Scissors, <laughs> and she was cutting Barry Oakley's hair, and Keith Richards, uh, you know, was close friends with the Allman Brothers and stuff. And she had this fantastic record collection of Carol King and oh, wow. 10 years after and the Beatles and the Stones and Cream and all that stuff. And I I was like eight years old and I, I picked up a guitar that belonged to a roommate and started playing the, the melody of uh, I'd Love to Change the World by... 10 years after right it's such a great acoustic intro and that was it that's what started it and then her next door neighbor uh invited me next uh, over to his place and he put on he had this gigantic he like a couple of uh klitsch cornwall speakers in a macintosh amplifier and he put on layla oh. and, cranked it. <laughs> oh, and i heard layla for the first time and I said that's it 
Dwayne Allman is my God. <laughs> yeah. So that's what started it. And then I got deeper into all that and realized that my, uh, uh, the people that inspired me the most, uh, aside from Dwayne Allman was, uh, Johnny Winter, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, Keith Richards, and so on and so on. And I just, boom, that's how it started. And I've never looked back. And I'm all self-taught. Wow. That's incredible. Now, you played with the Outlaws. I did. I did. I joined them in 1988 after I left another Southern rock band by the name of Doc Holliday, which I did I did one album with them, an uh, album called Live Song for the Outlaw. It's a really good record. We had a lot of fun. And what, what's really interesting about uh, that part of my life is that in high school, the Outlaws were my favorite party band to listen to. Yeah. You know, back in those days, living in, in Arizona, fast forward, uh, my, uh, we're going back, I should say, my father died when I was 13, so my mother and I moved from Macon, Georgia, out to Tucson, Arizona, which is where I live now. And I discovered the outlaws when I was in junior high and did a lot of peyote. <laughs> the outlaws. And that, that, that was like, you know, a big experience for me. And I had no idea that like 10 years later, I would be playing in the band. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, it was. And what was so cool about that period of my life is that I got to be on tour and play on the same stages with people I grew up listening to, like Edgar and Johnny Winter, Leon Russell, uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive, Pat Travers. I mean, I rubbed shoulders with some pretty heavy cats, man. It was a lot of fun. How awesome is <laughs> so that? That's hey, what I really call living the dream. Hey, Billy, I've been blessed enough to... Uh become pretty good friends and actually tour with uh, Little Feet. Did you ever work with them? I most certainly did. Um, when I lived in the Venice Canals, I was neighbors. I was a neighbor with Ed Cherney, who is a, a renowned, uh, was, he's passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately, uh, record producer and engineer who did uh, Nick of Time, Bonnie Raitt, um, Raitt, excuse me, and uh, Tears from Heaven, Eric Clapton right. got a Grammy for that. And uh, we became good friends. He would come out and do sound for our Venice Canal parties where we'd have all these uh, musicians get together and throw these outrageous parties. And he got me connected with Paul Barrer and Kenny Gradney of Little Feet. Yes. And they're, they were avid golfers yeah. Kenny still is both of them and they uh, were members of the Woodland Hills Country Club and the club had asked them to put on an, a music uh, performance to entice people to buy in memberships to the club and so my payment was if I provided the PA system, they would give me a free membership <laughs> to Woodland Hills Country Club. Well, I, I don't golf. You know, that's not my scene. But I went out there and uh, I played with this is a pretty cool lineup. Uh, uh, Scott Thurston on keyboards from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Wow. And Tony Bronigal on drums, who has been with uh, Taj Mahal for years. And... Uh, 
and Paul Barrera and Kenny Gradney. So I did two of those, uh, you know, two years running, we did two of those performances together. And I, I learned, you know, the majority of their material. And that was quite fun. You you know, we lost Paul uh, a while back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he died from liver cancer. Yeah. Last year, I was very sad about that. He was he was a good man, and he was a good friend. I mean. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. And when I had my amplifier repair business in Venice, uh, I repaired his amps for a few years, mm-hmm. and that was a, a result a result from uh, getting acquainted uh, through Ed Cherney. That was so cool. Yeah, that's when I met you. You were out there in in Venice in the canals, and yeah. We had a we had a lot of good times. I mean, I used to follow you guys around playing. I got some great photos of you and some video. You got some of the best photos. Are you kidding me? <laughs> God, we had a great time, especially out of Pappy and Harriet's. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I forgot about Pappy and Harriet. Yeah, right. Yeah, we went to that party afterwards there at the uh, in the parking lot. Yeah, yeah. and um, that was a lot of fun. That was really. It was. Good. And, and that's uh, where the thumbs up thing came, came about. So I can't wait to hear the story <laughs> off air. <laughs> oh, it's a classic. Oh, yeah. Classic rock and roll No, that story. thumbs up was at the um, coach house. That's true, but it, it furthered the effect. Oh, it furthered, yes, yes. <laughs> that's been our, our thing between us and very few people. I know, I know. It's so funny. It was, well, it kind of shocked you. I mean, I just. It's the first time I met you, so it was yeah. like... <laughs> but I remembered that um, you and some of our uh, then friends would, would go to the NAM show in Anaheim, and I did that for like 15 years, um, presenting for two or three different uh, guitar builders. Right. S- such as uh, James Trussart and uh, John Carruthers and LSL instruments out of Van Nuys. I remember and we sure LSL. had some fun at those those events, man. That was that was a lot of fun. Well, you did the uh, over at the Hilton. It was the Hilton, wasn't it, with my friend Sugar yeah. Ray? Yeah, I played with uh, Sugar Ray Rayford and the CK All Stars. I've got that video still. I did. And it's a killer. It, that was a killer show. God, that was fun. And you told me later you guys had not even rehearsed that. Was your first time playing? Well, we rehearsed one song because it it featured a dual slide arrangement, slide guitar solo arrangement uh, by Chuck Kaboris, who was the producer of uh, Sugar Ray Rayford. And he, had, uh, he owned Ambrosia's old studio out in the valley. And we rehearsed out there, and uh, he did uh, uh, Sugar Ray's first record. Now Sugar Ray's in Phoenix, and he's kind of a neighbor of mine, and we say hi once in a while. Cool. And he's doing really well. I know. I follow him, and, and uh, you know, I kind of go back and forth with him on occasion. But he's been so busy. His touring schedule has been really good. I know. It's insane. What are you working and on? And Chuck finally got tired of the fires uh, out, you know, in Simi Valley. So he sold a studio, moved to Nashville, and he's doing really well. Great. He's what kind of reinvented himself. What are you working on these days, Billy? Well, what I do, and this is this is why I'm glad we're doing this interview, is that um, 
I had the chance to reconnect with my high school sweetheart and eventually get married. I moved from Venice to Tucson, and I'd been away from Tucson for like 40 years. And when I got here, I realized that Tucson had become this amazing place of art and music. And it's like wide open, and there are so many fine, fine artists here. And I quickly got involved with the music scene. And one thing I noticed is that a lot of these artists were self-producing their records without much experience and uh, without a lot of success on the audio end. And me with the audio background and having owned um, several recording studios throughout my career, I, I kind of had a, a beat on that, you know what I mean? And so I reason, well, Tucson needs a record producer. And so about three years ago, I decided, you know what? I'm going to start producing because I got a studio here at my house and a mobile recording setup as well. And I reasoned, well, why not? And I, I chose two or three different artists that uh, really needed some guidance and a leg up. And so I got the ball rolling <laughs> and that's what I'm doing now. Aside from being a, a journeyman electrician, I still do that on the side gotta pay the bills as you, you know music, the music music can be an expensive hobby yeah. <laughs> you have a record you're working on right now don't you uh, you're producing someone yeah yes uh, the craig green band yes out of tucson and the black cat bones blues band great name very proud of them i've like i i said come on guys let's make you sound like the stars that you are and same with Craig Green. He is an incredible songwriter. And his first release uh, came out in February on Valentine's Day. And the title of that track is Sweet Love, which is appropriate. And it's it's all over the, you know, the usual sources. You look it up online. And uh, we're, we were working on uh, vocals for the follow-up release of that record and what we're doing which is a little uncommon I, I wouldn't say nobody else is doing it but we're re releasing one song a month for 12 months cool wow and then we're going to release the full album on vinyl wow yeah. Vinyl is making so a big like comeback in December yeah. we're going to release we're going to try to get this thing done by June or July with the fact that there is a backlog have you heard of this there's a backlog of up to six months to get anybody cut on vinyl wow all the vinyl houses are just jacked up wow yeah amazing who would've, who would've so thought? get your orders in early yeah <laughs> be sitting around for a while well this is really i'm really excited i I wanted to mention, do you remember your brick wall you had in your studio out in Venice? Oh, my God, that was amazing. The signatures. You got me to sign it. I was so I, thrilled to be up there with all that. You were right ready. next to Ry Cooter and Mavis Staples. Wow. 
Yep. <laughs> You're a star cat. <laughs> <laughs> I got a picture of that wall somewhere. Everybody that knows you just thinks the world of you, including me. Oh, thank you. Well, that was sure fun, and I sure hope to get out to see it. And uh, hopefully when you go out on tour, you'll come out this way. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of names and see, you know, see if we can get you hooked well, up out here. It would be a lot of fun to see you. And I tell you, you are one of the most fun people to photograph. You are. Thank you. Even if you can't hear your music, you can you can hear it through your expressions. Uh, on the way you play, and it's just so much fun. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. That that really that it means a, a a whole lot to me. And I I will say this: uh, I'm 61 now, but I'm playing better than I've ever played in my entire career. And so, be in store for some things that you did not know that was in my repertoire back when we used to hang out. And uh, I'm I'm having more fun with music than I ever have in my entire life. Great. Right now. It's it's just wide ass open. It's wonderful. Well, Billy, I thank great. you. Thank you so much for taking the time and um, being on our show. And I'll talk to you some Anytime, more. Anytime, Cat. Get some of your artists on our show as well. Do some promo with them. And I, I totally will. I'll hook you up with several. And I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to hook you up with some material that I'd worked with in the in the past, but I, I didn't have time. And and it's a, a, a project that really never saw the light of day, but it's a record I did with uh, Buddy Miles. Oh, wow. Of the Band of Gypsies. Sure. And uh, he's, he sang on one of my songs that uh, featured Chuck Lavelle mm. on keyboards from um, the Rolling Stones and the Almond Brothers. He's been a friend of mine for 40 years. And, uh, it, you know, it's a, one of those projects that just never took off or because we didn't have the distribution. But uh, it's a great record. I tell you what, Kat, we could maybe do a follow-up. I'll go ahead and make a copy of this and send it to you. And you can listen for yourself. But it's a pretty strong effort. It's a really good songwriting on this oh, record. Oh, good. Billy, thanks so much. I can't wait to meet you. I can't wait to meet you as well and thank you so much for having me on your show i'm truly honored anytime oh, thanks billy and i look forward to meeting dana oh yeah you're gonna love her she's awesome yeah she seems like it and um she and is. i'm following you on facebook so even though i might be quiet i'm still i'm still keeping <laughs> up with what you're doing well thank you i'm still likewise Tom says he's still on MySpace. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> on MySpace. <laughs> you know, I can't believe we admitted to that. <laughs> Take care, Billy. Bye-bye. Thanks, Billy. Right, take care. Thumbs we'll up. see you later. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Oh, what a fun visit. Billy Yates and what an amazing guitar player. What a history. Um, uh, the list of friends that... that are world famous oh i know i i love billy the pieces we've had so much fun and just a real genuine person he sure sounds like it and like i said i'm, I'm really anxious to meet him 
in person, face to face, and I know that'll happen sooner than later. Yeah, I can't wait to listen to his music too and work, you know, showcase some of his artists. Me too. It'll be it'll be fun. Tell you, let's what we should do is what why don't we, we do? what should we do? Why don't we play <laughs> the game of food and then uh, I'm eyeing this bottle of Dry Creek Vineyard Chardonnay. Uh, I think we ought to pour some of that into our glasses mm-hmm. and uh, then go into our interview with uh, Brian Pruitt, who's the associate winemaker at Dry Creek Vineyard. That was a great interview with Brian. We have some of the best interviews. Pick two cards, any oh, two geez. cards. Oh, or three. I did three again. <laughs> I did three last week. All right. Uh, your topic, Kat, is people and pop culture. People what? and pop culture. What food made a drippy cameo in the novel and film Call Me By Your Name? Was it A, a peach, B, a watermelon, C, an apple pie, or D, a pumpkin? In what movie? Call Me By Your Name. Call Me By Your Name? I actually saw that film. I don't think I've ever heard it. I it was peach, what? Peach, watermelon, apple pie, or pumpkin? Pumpkin. Peach. Correct. Uh-huh. That was my first. I should have gone with peach. <laughs> Go with your instincts. Yes. All right. What you got for me? This one is regional dishes. Oh okay. My God, this is not a freaking easy <laughs> one. In Utah, you can't have fries without fry sauce, which is a mixture of mayonnaise and A, mustard, B, pickle relish, C, ketchup, or D, barbecue sauce. I'm going to go with ketchup. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know. You're right. You're right. You're right. Cooking tools and techniques for my final question for you. How many teaspoons are there in a tablespoon? If you don't know this one, Kat. Three. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> what was that? Is, uh, a, two, B, two and a half, C, three, D, three and three quarters. Oh, yeah. That was Anybody amazing. who cooks at all knows there are three teaspoons in a tablespoon. Okay, this one is ingredients. Okay. Okra, oats, and moloch. M-O-L-O-K-H-I-A. Okay. Molokia. Although there's slime factor. Slime. (laughs) Slime factor to this sticky substance. Okay. A, electrolytes. C, catchkins. C, mucilage, or D, peptides? I'm going to go with mucilage. Pure guess. I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) I love you, too. I love you, Tom. You know that. But, God, (laughs) even when you guess, you're right. (laughs) All right, where's that bottle? Where's that bottle? Are we getting ready to to interview Brian? Put that bottle and glass up by the microphone. There we go. 2021 Dry Creek Vineyard Chardonnay. Uh, and uh, Brian Pruitt, our next guest, very much had a hand in making this uh, wine. So let's go into our uh, visit with him. I, I got to say, I'm not a big Chardonnay drinker, but I love this Chardonnay. Isn't this good? Oh, I mean, my. typically. <laughs> typically, I'm not a Chardonnay drinker. I always go for the reds. From the Russian River. From the dry reds. But I tell you, we, we had the Chardonnay, and then we had the uh, Fumé Blanc. Yes. And both were just yeah, incredibly yeah. good. And their reds are for my money, even better. But these are wonderful. And our guest today is uh, Brian. Brian, what's your last name? Pruitt. Brian Pruitt. And uh, Brian is one of the winemakers at Dry Creek Vineyard in Sonoma. And uh, I've been a fan of your wines for a long time, Brian. How long have you been with the winery? 
I've been here uh, six years, so 2023 will be my seventh vintage year. And uh, each year uh, brings new and exciting challenges, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but really, uh, no two vintages are, are ever the same, but that's, uh, that's part of what keeps it exciting. What sparked your interest in wine? What, what excites you about winemaking on a regular basis? Yeah, so I really, you know, I think when I was a kid, looking back, I was always fascinated with all things, you know, flavor and aroma. Um, you know, I always found myself, you know, hanging out with mom and dad in the kitchen, asking what they're doing, tasting things. I think I, you know, when I was 13, 14 years old, I thought I wanted to be a chef. Um, and, you know, when I learned how busy that is, I was like, I don't know, being a chef is kind of hectic. And little did I know, I ended up being a winemaker. And that's uh, pretty hectic and brings its own uh, challenges as well. Um, but I, I just, I just love, um, I just love the experience of tasting and smelling wine. I think that's why I was fascinated with food. You know, I'm still kind of a foodie and still love cooking at home today. Um, and I really found that, um, you know, winemaking was kind of an outlet that really, um, really, you know, really tied into that, that interest that I have. You know, a lot of people say that, you know, winemaking is kind of the crossroads between um, science and art. And, you know, I certainly, I think that's something that's true. It's something that gets said a lot, but it certainly resonates with me. Um, and I um, I ended up studying, uh, kind of found my way to studying agricultural business um, at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And they first started talking about grape growing and winemaking. And, it, um, and I did, though, you know, I was 18 years old, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a career, and I just found myself kind of on the edge of my seat as professors talked about that, and so I really tailored my education to winemaking and viticulture and um, decided to go work a harvest, and as soon as I worked my first harvest, you know, I, um, I, I caught the bug, as a lot of us say, and I was just hooked, and I just wanted to get as much of it as I could, and I did some traveling harvests and worked seasonally for a bit and just really... Um, Really, it's something that I just absolutely love and have a passion for. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just it's just great. You know, I love, you know, drinking wine myself, but seeing, you know, you kind of get to be a part of other people's lives and experiences. You know, a lot of people have wine for celebrations and or maybe just on the table on a, you know, on a Thursday night or something, you know, and, um, and you know, that you, you get to be a little part of a lot of people's lives. And so that's, that's, that's pretty cool, too. SLO has one of the top programs in the country, don't they? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. UC Davis is really well known, and Cal Poly San Luis Obispo is is right up there as well. And then Fresno State has a fantastic program as well. And you know, there's 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 more even more programs than that, but Cal Poly is definitely up there. So I was I was fortunate to be at a good spot that really gave me the opportunity to really grow and learn and um, have a great foundation moving into moving into winemaking. We have your Fumé Blanc in our glasses right now. What can you tell us about that wine? Awesome, yeah. Um, yeah, Fumé Blanc is really, um, you know, it's it's really where the winery started. You know, uh, Dave Stair wanted, uh, you know, he fell in love with Sauvignon Blanc in the Loire Valley in France, and, uh, and he wanted to plant Sauvignon Blanc in Dry Creek Valley because he wanted to make wines that he liked drinking. And, you know, people thought, you know, he was crazy and they thought it wouldn't grow well, but it turns out that it's the... Uh, number one white variety in dry creek dry creek valley and um and it, you know it's obviously a very very popular variety today and just getting more and more popular by the year um so fume blanc is uh was our first sauvignon blanc that we made and it's really kind of a 
it's really kind of a benchmark of California Sauvignon Blanc. It's kind of what, um, you know, back in 1972 when it all started, it was, it was a very unique thing to be making a dry Sauvignon Blanc in this style. Um, so Fumé Blanc is a stainless, you know, hundred percent stainless steel. Um, we, we like to harvest it at, uh, kind of on the early end of ripeness, you know, the alcohol usually is in the 13, five range. Um, and we're trying to really capture a lot of those uh, fresh aromatics, vibrant citrus fruit, lemon, lime, grapefruit um, that you get with Sauvignon Blanc when it's harvested a little earlier. Um, and so we're just looking to make a wine that really defines the variety, really, you know, smells and tastes like Sauvignon Blanc and um, is just re- re- refreshing in the glass. Uh, oysters jump to my mind immediately. What else would you pair with this? Yeah, I think oysters are, are a great pairing. Um, you know, I, I, I oftentimes like making, um, you know, pastas that are bright with, like, olive oil mm. and lemon and uh, fresh herbs, um, seafood. I think it does great with that. Um, and so it's really uh, it's really very food-friendly. Uh, my wife and I, a lot of times, will, you know, have, you know, cheese and charcuterie and things like that. And it's just a, a wine that could be drank and enjoyed on its own. It's very Absolutely. refreshing. But I think it pairs with quite a bit of different foods. And when we... When we put the show together, um, we're going to be opening uh, your current release of uh, Chardonnay. What can you tell us about your Chardonnay? Yeah, our Chardonnay is uh, a wine that we're we're really proud of. You know, the the winery used to make a larger volume of Chardonnay, and we kind of and some of it was from the Dry Creek Valley, and we found that you know um, we you know Dry Creek Valley may not be the best um, appellation for it, and so we really started focusing on Russian River Valley for our fruit. Um, and we really wanted to focus on a very small production, high quality. So it's, um, it's all fermented in, uh, in barrels, um, 88% which are uh, French oak barrels. And then 12% are actually stainless steel drums, stainless steel shaped barrels. And so we're really looking for a very um, complex, um, very vibrant Chardonnay. Um, and while we do have um, some new oak on it, um, I don't know... We're, we're, it's probably not your typical California style. We usually will do partial malolactic fermentation, so we'll really hold on to some of that malic acid. So we want some um, bright, refreshing, crisp acidity. Um, but then we still do want some of those creamy notes and those nuances you get from barrel fermentation and from the new oak itself. So we're looking for it to be, you know, soft and approachable and nice and round in the mid palate, but still a nice, refreshing, bright acidity that we think, you know, kind of keeps you coming back for another sip and also makes this wine food-friendly as well. What, what would you say sets, sets Dry Creek Vineyard apart from other wineries, maybe uh, not only in Sonoma County, but in the state? You know, Dry Creek Vineyard, it's something that I really love about working here. You know, we really are one of the last truly private, family-owned wineries um, around. You know, in the modern wine industry, there's much like many industries, there's so much consolidation. A lot of larger companies are sort of gobbling up the little guys. And so we're really proud to be family-owned and, you know, the same ownership. And there's no really other ulterior business models or no, you know, sometimes, you know, our owners will say there's no oil rig in the back. You know, this winery, this business, this family is all focused on on making wine, producing wine, selling wine, and um, and, and really trying to over-deliver on quality. And so I think it's it's really a, a special company to work for, and I'm really proud to be here. And, and I think um, I think there's just a, a level of authenticity and and quality that um, – that, uh, that is uh, unfortunately increasingly rare in the wine industry. 
How, how do you go about with your blending? How do you how do you blend your wines? Yeah, um, you know, blending. I, I think I think the, the with blending, you really our goal is to really start with super high quality wine up front. So really, from you know. It, having a really good wine at the end blending is the last step but we want to make sure we do our work to have high quality wine and um you know set ourselves up to have some complexity you know pick vineyards in multiple small lots have a variety of different um barrel types oak types different toasts so then you really have kind of a, a spice rack to work with when you're blending and so you really want to be very familiar with your wines and have them um, you know, taste them often, have them graded, know which lots, which barrels you like, and kind of, and also have an idea of what, what's your style, what's your goal, and have some familiarity with your vineyard and the wine that you're trying to make. And so kind of having quality and complex components to work with and knowing what your end goal really is really makes that blending process, you kind of have, you sort of have a vision. Um, and so we grade every single barrel individually, um, and we know which lots that we sort of have them designated for certain bottlings. Um, and then when we do blend, uh, we do it totally blind. So myself um, and then uh, Tim Bell is our other winemaker, and then uh, Laura is our lab tech. And so the three of us are sort of the tasting panel. And so we, we come up with different blends and percentages and put them together, and then we actually put them in a brown bag. And so we don't know blend A, B, C, or D, which is which. And so having that blind, it really takes away the bias, and then you could really, you know, judge the wines accordingly. Sometimes if you say, oh, my idea is to add 2% more Cabernet Franc to this, this cab blend, you know, then, then you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I, I like that because I like my idea. You really want to take that bias away and really just be grading the wine on, on, on its merit alone. Well, I, I think that's a great philosophy, and, and you do. Uh, the Mariner is your Meritage blend, isn't it? That's correct, yeah. yeah. What a beautiful wine, consistently year after year. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a wine I'm very proud of, and it's actually one of my favorite wines to drink. That's 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 one where we really um, are, 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 what we're tasked with that wine every year is to make the best uh, Bordeaux-style blend possible every year. It's always based a little bit more on Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, usually north of 50%, maybe 50 to 65% Cabernet Sauvignon. But other than that, it's all about maximizing quality and showcasing showcasing what Bordeaux-style blends can be in the Dry Creek Valley and maximizing a, a given vintage as well. Do you have a favorite variety to work with? Yeah, it's tough. You know, I really, um, it, it's, I, it, it's really hard to pick one, but I, I, I'd say, I, I might have to say Sauvignon Blanc, actually. Um, I just, it's a, it's a variety, you know, I, I love drinking the end product. I think it's a fantastic wine, but it's, it, there's such a wide range of styles that Sauvignon Blanc can produce. And so I just, I love working with it in the vineyard, the flavor of the grapes, the smells that come out of the fermenters. Um, I just think, I just think it's phenomenal. And, um, and, and it's such a complex grape that when you pick it um, at lesser ripeness, like this Fumé Blanc that we have here, um, you know, we always are looking to have little green grassy notes like, mm -hmm. like lemongrass and maybe even some spices like pepper um, and some minerality there um, and then more kind of citrus fruit. And whereas if you let, the, you know, if you pull some leaves in the vineyard and let more light get into the grapes and let the ripeness increase a little bit, you get into more tropical fruits and um, passion fruit, pineapple, stone fruits like peach. You, um, you get this just wonderful range um, that that 
really all starts in the vineyard with how ripe it is. And then, um, you know, whether it's fermented in stainless steel like the Fume or we have some other wines we make where we do some barrel fermentation and treat with treat with some different types of wood and um, kind of a mix of percentages of everything in between. I just think it's such a complex variety. Both um, you can make a lot of unique styles that truly are different and special. Um, and then, they, you know, in the end, they, they, they fit into different, you know, pairings with food or different occasions. And so it's just really... Um, I just think it's a very complex varietal that's that's a lot of fun to work with. Is there a grape you find particularly challenging to work with? Zinfandel. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I I, <laughs> I, uh, I I love Zinfandel. I love I love making it, even though it is challenging. Um, and I, I I think it's a great a great wine that um, that really fits in all different parts of your life and you know and again for me it always goes back to food right like we've been talking about so i think it pairs very nicely but zinfandel is a very challenging grape to grow it it ripens very unevenly um and uh and so it's not it's not easy uh to grow in the vineyard and it's challenging sometimes to make a picking decision and so it's something that um it does not it does not fit into a nice you know, it doesn't fit perfectly in a box. It's very yeah. outside the box. Every vintage is very different. Every vintage for all varieties is different, but Zinfandel is so susceptible to that that range and how it develops in the vineyard and sugar and acid. It you, you can't have a recipe with Zinfandel. You really need to know what you're doing. You need to be you know, have a lot of attention in the vineyard and attention to detail and you need to you need to trust yourself. And if you had a plan that the sugar or acid was going to be a certain number. That plan goes out the window <laughs> most vintages. So you really, you really need to know what you're doing and trust your instincts. And um, and um, and if you pull it off, it, Zinfandel just shines. It really does. It sure does. And it, I would imagine one of the challenges is to keep it from becoming a, a, a an all-out fruit bomb. Absolutely. Yeah, that's something that we really um, it it it. it it, it is the most challenging part of it, and it takes, um, you know, a little extra effort and extra attention to detail, and it's something that is really um, foundational to our Zinfandel program. Um, we really – Zinfandel is actually a very complex variety. I think a lot of a lot of times when it is allowed to get overripe in the vineyard, you lose that complexity, yeah. um, and it gets a little oversimplified, and it becomes a fruit bomb, exactly like you said. And so um, – managing um managing the vineyard and making a timely picky decision really retains that natural acidity so you're not having to alter it with a bunch of acid in the winery um and and it also manages that sugar level so that you don't have just out of control um out of control alcohol or potential stuck fermentations so managing that sugar acid balance at harvest um not only does that allow you to have a clean healthy fermentation uh an alcohol that's not through the roof but uh it has that wonderful fruit that zinfandel has but there's so much spice and pepper and these you know cardamom coriander there's so many um wonderful spices and complex flavors and aromas that zinfandel has you really lose when it gets too ripe and we're we're totally fortunate and blessed here in dry creek valley because it is an ideal location to to grow zinfandel and so we um if we manage it right and and um and you know take care of the vineyard and take care of the wine once the grapes come in house um um, we're really really fortunate with what we're able to pull off here well now i'm going to have to ask jenny if she'll send us a bottle 
I I, th- I think you should. Yeah, yeah. We, we have we have quite a few we have quite a few options for you, and and Jenny can definitely get uh, get you taken care of. I, I think you'd be happy. We got a lot of rain this winter, Brian. What impact did that have on your vineyard? Yeah, it's been you know it's been pretty wild up here. You know, it's been been a lot of rain, but it's it's I think it's been nothing but good for the vineyards. Um, you know, with with what we've been facing, you know, throughout the state, and then you know. Sonoma County has dealt with a lot of similar issues with the lack of rain, some drought conditions. Um, recharging the the groundwater has been huge, you know. Um, and and having it, you know, early on there were a couple big storms, and um, which which we've had we have some of those over the last handful of years. But this has been a great year where there's been you know there's big some big storms and deluge, and you have the runoff. But there's been some more. Um, lighter rain and moderate rain mixed in and that really helps to 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 percolate and penetrate the soil and really kind of recharge that groundwater Um, and so that's that's great for the vines it gives them water to tap into throughout the growing season Um, and especially with you know some of our older more established vineyards and many of the old truly old vines infidel vineyards we work with they have these great tap roots so that water is going to be down there for a while so um, pretty fortunate we we have uh, one of our estate vineyards is um, uh, totally reliant on um, it, it all the water runs off into a pond and so the you know we don't have a well or anything so any any irrigation that we do even though we try to do minimal irrigation across everything we just have whatever whatever's in that pond and so the last couple of years you know we end up having to have a much smaller crop because there's only so much water to go around. So this this rain has definitely um, definitely been a good thing for the vineyards. I think that uh, Kat and I, uh, Brian, are going to have to plan a road trip and come up and pay you a visit. Sounds like a absolutely. Plan. Please do, please do. We'd, we 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 would love to have you guys up here. And um, it's just uh, the Dry Creek Valley. You know, you you know Sonoma County being in Santa Rosa previously. The Sonoma County is a wonderful place, and Dry Creek Valley is truly a little gem within Sonoma County. And um, we have a wonderful team here. I just, I just think our, our wineries—it's a beautiful location, a beautiful site to come visit and taste. And I just think we have some amazing people that that can host you. And um, you let me know when you come up, and we'll definitely um, say hello. Brian, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you very much. Hey. Hey, you're welcome. I'm glad you guys want to talk to us and uh, appreciate your time and um, look forward to seeing you when you come up and visit, okay? You got a deal. Take care, Brian. Thank you. (laughs) All right, take care. Have a good one. Okay, bye. Bye. So, Kat, for a non-Chardonnay drinker, how do you like that Chardonnay? Well, let's see. I'm on my, what, third glass. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you like it okay. I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, Brian very much had a hand in making that and... uh, we, I haven't tasted a Dry Creek wine that I'm not a big fan of. They're all that's, wonderful. So I said it's my go-to wine. Yeah. You know, and I'm at, at an unfamiliar place to buy wine, and I don't know what to get. Dry Creek. There you go. All right, tell us about uh, next week, your friend, Prince friend. Fleet Easton. Tell us yeah. a little bit about Prince. God, I think it was probably about nine years ago, and uh, I saw him. At, uh, at, a, at an event and I was with my friend Cheryl Somerville mm-hmm. and we were thinking boy this guy is good and so I became friends with him on Facebook and been following him and he is like not just a, a singer but he, uh, he's also an uh, actor he's got, gotten into acting he's an entertainer and a complete entertainer uh, I am so thrilled to 
call him my friend. He is a nice sweetheart of a person. I love him to pieces and wish him just the best. And it, it, the world is just opening up for him. And he was our guest on uh, when the show was Chords and Vines but four years ago, probably yeah, around then. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, it's I just amazing. This guy is just incredibly good at everything he does. And like I said, a sweetheart of a person. And I'm so fortunate that he, he's been able to take some time to, to meet with us. Well, I'm excited to visit with him and our other guest, Matthew Kenslow. Yes, that's another one I'm excited to talk with. He is the author of Juggling the Issues, Living with Asperger's Syndrome, which is now, I don't, I think they've done away with Asperger's. It's part, and it's all, it's part of the autism spectrum. And he was diagnosed when he was six years old. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, and as you know, I've been, I'm very aware, aware, <laughs> very aware. of, of um, autism, having and an autistic As grandson. I am becoming. Yes, you're part of it too. Uh, my grandson was diagnosed at age three, which they had a hard time. They did not want to give him a diagnosis. But one of the uh, the key factors uh, when you have autism is an early diagnosis so you can get the proper <laughs> therapy is what yes. I'm trying to say. But, um, and the help that you need because you it's not a matter of they don't want to learn. It's just you having to they, learn how to teach Exactly. Them. They have a different way of learning. And, and uh, uh, Braden, your grandson, is brilliant. He is a very smart young man. And that's why we have to challenge teachers all the time because yep. they get put into a system where they teach them all the same, and each child is an individual. So we'll have a, a good visit with Matthew. I'm really looking forward to that. Me too. Again, I want to thank our friends at Melissa's Produce, our official produce sponsor. Who, uh, we got that uh, incredible recipe for the purple potato salad. Oh, it was so, so good. Melissa's.com, and uh, we'll be certainly hearing more from them and our friend Robert Schuler. I'm going to post that purple potato salad on our Cords, Fines, and Dines Facebook page. Oh, you sh definitely should because everybody's going to love that. I think I'll post it on my uh, Sassy Mamas as well. Why not? All right. It's a wrap. It's another, a wrap. Another fun show. Thank you all for listening in, and until next Sunday. See you then. Hi, this is Vince Mendoza, and you are listening to Chords, Vines, and Dines.